Um, I will start by saying a few things to try to um, see if I can address kind of what seems to be a general threat, and I'd like to make two points, I think. So the first one, it seems, um, and this came out partly also in discussion during the break, is that, we, I mean, this, this view that I can hold myself out of the sexual act at will, yes, or that I can somehow sometimes be in it and sometimes be out, does very strongly... Um, what underlies that is this body-soul disconnection. So somehow, um, instead of a union between body and soul, we're really ad advocating then that there's this kind of disconnection. What seems very strange to me, and what would be my response in the culture in particular, is that it seems to me that on all other levels of activity and appetite, we're so hyper-conscious of the union nowadays, you know? where I'm so conscious of what I eat because I think it will somehow affect me, or I'm so conscious about how I exercise in my Zen time because somehow it's going to affect my deeper self. Do you know? And so it seems to me that it's that, that, that precisely how, what's so beneficial about Hildebrand is that he begins with the nature of the sexual act itself, and he tries to show, I mean, that that is even different in the realm of all acts. That, and, and he, I think, makes some very solid, good points that um, one would have to return to and one could make more examples but somehow precisely that well if there is such a, a close body-soul connection in all of these others so hum, somehow they affect me and then particularly and also taking into consideration the point the other points that were made here we're not just talking about one body and one soul but two bodies and two souls yeah in the union um, in the sexual act that, that that would seem significant and we can't simply um do away with that. And then the other thing that I think Hildebrand, at least what we've been hearing, one of the things from Hildebrand that I'd like to bring up is, you know, he always has an issue with this sense of man viewing this kind of freedom in terms of control, like this hyper, super control, you know, so that somehow freedom is defined by the fact that I can control things. And his whole point is, in fact, there are many things that we cannot control, and that's why we, we cooperate with them. And we have to cooperate with them in good ways. So, you know, we've been talking about the heart and affectivity and how there are just many things. It's simply given and then even in a very valuable way. So then it's that gift character. And the point is not to, like, we don't have that control over ourselves to that degree. Yeah? And so somehow we seem to want to maintain that in the sexual act and in the sexual sphere. And then yet, I mean, think about everything else. I can't even control when I get sick or when I get tired or when I have a head. I mean, like all of those things, somehow now there I don't have, you see, this control even over just my body, let alone the connection between my soul and my body. Um, so it would just seem, I think, that, to me it would seem that Hildebrand would, 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 would encourage us, as a start at least, I mean, to look at, you know, this, and, and this idea of um, freedom and, and that controlling that we have, how much can we really control these things, but then also really at this union, I mean, between soul and body, but particularly in the sexual act, where that's not to say, remember, uh, maybe a third point, remember how Hildebrand um, rejects beginning with the perversion of things, like he, he says, you know, because then you discard it, or then you, you have a false understanding of the thing itself. Though it is true that even in the perversion we can learn something about the true nature of the thing, yeah? But I mean, that he would want to start at precisely a positive point somehow, in the sense of 
how sex can or how it how it can be that it can it is the only way to express this, regardless of whether it is always an expression of this, regardless of whether it you know. I mean, we could we could imagine very well if somebody's been a prostitute or they've been sold into prostitution, you know, for 30 years. This has been their life. I mean, this is you know he would he would not he would not deny that that perversion then has somehow caused such an obscuration even of the self or such a. I mean, there's been that you know that we're not talking about the full blossoming of that sort of revelation of the intimate self that can happen in a spousal act in the proper context when precisely it is ennobled by love. Do you see? So I mean. I, these seem to be, um, to me at least, distinctions that would that that, that would be helpful um, to make. But we have another hand, and then I know that um, on this side I'll get plenty more <laughs> deeper insight, richer insight. It will come in just a moment. But let me get take these two questions. Yes. So it's not like eating refried Twinkie bars and then immediately <laughs> blowing up and, and seeing the consequence physiologically, but one would have to somehow <laughs> wait. No, but I mean, I think that, that, I think that there's, there is a lot of truth to that. So in, in, in the sense that, you know, it, there's certainly value, and, and there's value also to, and Hildebrand would acknowledge that, there can certainly be a blindness, you know. He, Hildebrand talks much about that blindness. It's not to say that just because someone doesn't recognize it, it isn't happening. You know, and then the question is, can we? Are there moments in their experience that we can then point to and say, "But see, you're, that now at least you're, you're, you you see something of what I'm trying to get at." So, I mean, we have to take that into consideration, I think, as well. Yes. Well, um, building on that, I was just going to wonder if, in dialoguing with the culture, if the question isn't, um, I think the arguments kind of fall flat because they're already value blind and. Question you need to ask is how do we show them the value of the person? They're not just you know, and the other person in themselves because if they're blind to that, most of these arguments just they, they kind of fall flat because they don't they don't already see the value. I mean, it seems like the arguments kind of presuppose that you already see the value. If you don't see the value, I don't know how, how do you reach the person. Aristotle would would very much agree with you um, because Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics has that very very. Um, like powerful passage where he says, and, and, and you get some of that also in Hildebrand, John Crosby mentioned that the other day, I think, where he says that, you know, once you're talking to um, somebody who's immoral, then they won't hear what you're saying, like they will not be receptive to it. And we find that very often in that discussion, also on contraceptives, if you have a room full of people who are contraceiving, then 
there, there's an inability to receive anything. Like there's just sort of this, um, and so that sets us up. Of course, it seems then incredibly pessimistic and very dark. As I mentioned the other day, Aristotle's solution is begin with the young, um, and I think that's a very hopeful thing. Yeah, and then um, I, I think that Hildebrand, I, what I appreciate about his axis is that he does still try to uh, appeal to maybe the the entirety of the experience won't be open, but maybe even if it's just the one or the other aspect that might capture the audience's attention, you know, where they, maybe even if there's just one in a list of 20 points that you could make about sex, that somehow, oh yeah, okay, I can see a difference there, but, you know, I mean, it would be a very slow process, and it would be very, very difficult, so I, I, I would agree, and I think that Hildebrand would agree that, you know, that fundamental attitude, that fundamental being open to receiving the truth about value certainly has to be there. And that is something that no discussion and dialogue, no matter how good you can put the master John Crosby in the room with the person, that will still not affect you know, a, um, an ability of the person to understand what you're saying. Um, so youth might be very young, might be um, one way to go. We should all become... Which is, we all become elementary kids. Forget college. So I'd say to that, um, it's you know there is kind of this element of like Aristotelian habituation into like a false perception of of reality, and I think kind of what we've been talking about, um, especially beginning with Christopher's kind of Thomistic language of subject-object, subject-subject. Um, it's just an, a notion of objective truth. And if someone doesn't have like an awareness or a willingness to recognize the, the truth as an object outside of themselves as a subject, uh, not that it doesn't have a subjective element, um, then that's, that, that's what makes the conversation kind of fall flat, um, fall on deaf ears. And so maybe a... Uh, I mean, like we were talking about when we were discussing the affections, um, maybe like an aesthetic um, perspective could be helpful. And if we can kind of indicate to people that there's a greater beauty that they're missing out on um, somehow, that will get their attention because people want that. People long for that. Um, they want beauty. They want goodness. And even if it's not a, uh, a situation where they're able to understand these arguments from a truth standpoint, um, that, that an argument from a, a beautiful standpoint, that there's a, there's a greater, more rich, um, beautiful, joyful um, experience that they're missing out on, could be a doorway into that. And in discussing, like, you know, withholding the self, and is it possible to withhold the self, um, even in the sexual act, I would kind of go back to this this objective argument. Um, whether or not they know their the objective realities of what they're doing um, doesn't negate the objective realities um, of what's happening. And if I think there's an opportunity there, um, not just to the negative but to the positive, to, to discuss race and you know the re the restorative value of race. Um, in terms of what is objective and what is objectively happening. Um, and if it all can kind of be discussed through a lens of beauty and through the aesthetic, I think that um, maybe it will get people's attention a little bit more. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, it is, of course, at least on a theoretical level, people can be just as blind to beauty even then, or that can be a very difficult... But I, what I appreciate, maybe something that, um, that uh, John Henry Newman would say is that, you know, that, that, that um, beauty, especially through the real lived experience of it, like there is something where, again, you know, I think that there's, there is a value to sometimes, you know, and this is a very, I think, unique call where it's maybe not so much to, to even, maybe the philosophical arguments will break down, but it seems a particular call then to the individuals who, who are open, who are susceptible, who, who, who understand this beauty, then to live it in a beautiful and joyful way, and that that is then the captivation, you know, or that somehow we can captivate them and bring them back into a kind of a philosophical, um, or, and, then, and then deepen that philosophically. That I would certainly... Appreciate and agree with, right. I think. And you, you hear yeah. discussion of like the the example of the the married relationship on display, um, kind of point pointing to the the relationship between God and man, and this kind of redemptive example. Um, Professor Frederica said something uh, a couple days ago that I think applies to this when he when he discussed the. The lived experience of the the marital relationship being a freeing because of the kind of commitment of the will, um, it having a certain freedom attached to it that enables the energy for perseverance in the relationship and a deepening of love is something that is very difficult to communicate outside of experience, um, and so. You know, maybe that's all we have. Maybe all we have is examples of, of really um, Christ-centered relationships um, being put on display, and, you know, and building relationships with others to put these things um, in their minds, yes, in, in an aesthetic kind of sense, uh, but also in an experiential kind of way. Mm-hmm. Being the philosopher that I am, I, I like to think that that's not the only thing we have, and that we have the years <laughs> reason as well. But yes, no, I think that that is actually it comes down to being the most powerful, perhaps, voice that that we have, and that especially when we live our philosophy, that was of course brought up the other evening. That that has to be there, you know. Or we live our belief, we live our, our religion. I mean, otherwise, it's of course all unconvincing. Um, so yes, um, with regard to the you know the negative the objective realities that happen, um, say, for chemical sex. Some terms were used, like, there's a depletion that goes on, there's an emptiness. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, like, what is the nature of the heart that it can be squandered, and is there something essential that is depleted, or is it maybe wounded? It seems to me that there's something essential to every human person, whether they're a prostitute or whatever, that can never be depleted or squandered, can never be empty. There's a certain intrinsic dignity. But is there, is maybe wounding a better, wounding the heart a better mm-hmm. term? Um, is the heart something that can be, can be squandered and so thank you for bringing us back to that earlier question. Would you like to give that a go? Should you know, I, I think that's really much. Uh, I think that's a very good point. That this wandering is a, a complete self-loss. It's a, a wounded self.
respect arises in a person who habitually uh, has sex without any marital commitment. Particularly conspicuous in women, in my experience, but that loss of self respect is just what you expect. Mm-hmm. Until the brand has it right about throwing oneself into it, squandering oneself, mm-hmm. dissipating mm-hmm. oneself. But remaining, like um, Henry says, uh, as a wounded self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that, um, and, and, and self respect is a highly prized thing in our culture, so maybe there's a way to move up with that mm-hmm. and uh, get a hearing for um, responsible Mm-hmm. I mean, Hildebrand at one point, I'm trying to remember now in which of the, the, the several chapters that we read, says, so that we never lose ourselves completely, that that's impossible, which of course is the optimism, because then we can always, you know, but that there is a, a way, there's another way in which we can speak of a kind of a self-loss or wounding where we've surrendered something important of ourselves or, or we've somehow lost possession of it, we've given it away and that there is that need to recapture that, there is that need to sort of regain that. And so it would seem to me that, I mean, we always try to be very careful when we talk to people and of course, you know, somebody's been doing this over a long time. Um, and, and I think that also maybe to something that you had said, the burden of the challenge is really on us, right? Because we have to come up with the examples that will really be gripping, that really come close to home. And it may be different for one person than it is for another person, you know? And we have to be attentive to the language, and we have to be attentive to saying things in a, in a, in a distinguished enough way that, you know, people can understand without sort of taking that offense to it. But, but there is certainly that, you know, that emptiness also that can happen where one can see the difference between a person like that and then a person who just simply lives the fullness of themselves and who hasn't somehow lost possession of themselves, you know. And so, for example, to an addict, like a, a heroin addict, I mean, it's not to say that they're no longer themselves at all anymore, but I mean, certainly we would agree in that case that they're not fully themselves, like they've lost something very essential. So we see it in those in those very extreme situations, and even with sexuality, then and, and, and in a different way because it is very different than in the addiction to heroin. There is something you know, Hildebrand talks about at one point that it's more perverting in in in, in a very um, in a very profound way, but again different than if we have other abuses. Does that answer somewhat what? Healing and then truth and then healing and then 
healing has to be, and healing and hope, I think, to give, because when I talk to people about um, the fact that like, maybe a sense of innocence can be reclaimed, or like that hope of being able to reclaim something seems to, to light up something inside people, because mm-hmm. I think they always start to despair. Now, I, I really like, I, I like this from the aspect also of now, from Hildebrand's, because I, I find that, especially among women, that, that sort of feeling impure, right? Feeling that, that, and I think that Hildebrand has something very hopeful here to say, because purity is, because he defines it in terms of our relation to values, not just to, but, and not to the past in some sense, you see? So, that an impurity, so, that there's that virtue that, that, that can exist, you know, where one doesn't have to recapture the past or somehow make it undone because, of course, it's impossible. And then there's a kind of a hopelessness that comes with that. And, of course, I, you know, in, from our experience, we're talking about, I think, a different kind of purity here, but if we can reorient and if we can, if we can speak about or give the message of, you know, the kind of virtue of purity in the Hildebrandian sense, then... That would be just simply a, a way to go from this moment forward also, you know, and, and the way to have that, I think, new beginning without having that past hanging over so drastically, you know, as it can be if we understand purity in a different way, as something, as, as that innocence that can't be recaptured, you know, or, um, so I don't know, maybe it's, a, it's just simply a thought from, yes, Anna. On the proper side of the sexual relationship, in the sense where you still have to be aware of, um, say, in a, in, a, in a marriage, the wife not giving her complete self in a sense that she loses sight of her own value. And so that, that understanding of having to perceive your own value, the preciousness of your own gift, is important in order, in order to be able to actually give that gift. said, and, and very much in line with everything that Hildebrand has been saying thus far, you know, where, I mean, that, that appropriate relation, I mean, or that appropriate understanding of who we are, that that precedes, of course, in that appropriate understanding of love, that that somehow does precede any deeper understanding than also of, um, and that sex is used so often, isn't it, because of that lack of self it, like self the lack of self respect not only coming after sex has been abused but already preceding that because then or that lack of self esteem because we seek to be loved we desire at one point i remember being struck very much by john paul ii when he said 
we, we desire love more than we desire freedom. And then so he makes this very interesting case where he says, you know, freedom is freedom for the good, so love, so freedom is for the sake of love. Like, so, I mean, where he, he, he has this very interesting, very powerful kind of message to the youth, but simply how, how um, and I think that's the power also of Hildebrand, how he really has, you know, he gives us a tool to speak to people, again, in a deeper way about love, not just him, obviously many others, but that that really is so central, because in love, you know, that proper understanding of self and of the other, of course, is, is required. That's very, I like that a lot, yeah. Yes, sorry. Um, Catherine, right? Yeah. The, there's another, you know, bringing in that this is all our body and our soul combined, you know, <coughs> fields of study, you know, we were talking about statistics earlier, showing how people later on in life, they, um, they are affected by these things, even if they don't realize it. And I think, well, honestly, a lot of people don't ever fully comprehend how they were affected. But um, in my work in abstinence, uh, there's been this study that it really, it's in its infancy, it's not been well formed, so I don't like to use it as proof. But there has been some evidence to show that when we have these um, sexual relationships with people, and we have them like frequently with different partners, there's the, the chemical process in our body that's why in the absence part we use the tape example a lot, because when you reuse a piece of tape, it loses bonding power. And um, a lot of people don't like that because they're like, well, there's no room for redemption in it, but that's a whole, it's a piece of tape, it's an example. But there is some, <laughs> <laughs> it's an analogy, and all analogies are imperfect. But the idea is that when these, these I forget which hormone it is in our body, but the, the constant... Um, misuse of it, and this is where we can show from another, from an outside of philosophy, proving to, or kind of showing people how it can affect us in more objective, concrete form. Our physical bodies are telling us that there's something wrong with this, because when we do it so often with different people, we then lose our ability when we find that person that we love, to really bond with them. We've lost that ability to, well, we, we've in, until we have, you know, through whether it's counseling or, you know, so we, we can regain it, but but there's a damage there that we've done to ourselves physically that that prevents us from truly having that that bond with one person in love. But it would seem not just physical, because I mean, uh, you could speak of it, the physical being very intriguing, if there, you know, if the statistics would indicate that. But that, I mean, simply on the level of a person, that it becomes very difficult to, to bond, or it, we, we, we withhold something of ourselves, and it's, and it's far harder to, really, you know, to give that. It's that cross neuropsychology where, you know, it's, yeah, it's not just biological, it's the biological process that is happening because of our actions, and it affects our or you could say that it's the soul that is yeah. manifesting itself even physically, like somehow yeah. how, how what's happening on the level of the soul even has an actual concrete physiological um, manifestation. If there's that you know connection that's so deep, then I mean, the, you know, which happens first? Is it the is it on the level of the soul or is it on? So just simply saying that philosophically, that could be a very interesting that that is a very interesting point as well. Um, did you want to add yeah, something I to that? I was going to say about, like, the tendons we have around, oh, and there's oxytocin. Yeah, right? Sorry, I've been here. What? Oxytocin. 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 Oxyt
<laughs> I feel like you're more qualified to <laughs> sit in the chair of <laughs> you deep and hold your breath. It would seem to me somehow that maybe the beloved, it has to be, to wait, I mean, to love the beloved. I mean, you would have to have some kind of person. You could, you could withhold yourself. <coughs> I mean, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean... There, he, you know, the, certainly the value to save yourself, but that you have this kind of love or this cherishing already of the beloved, and that seems very, very theoretical, at least to me. I don't know that somehow for him it is so crucial to have an actual, have an actual person. Could I um, say, say yes. that might move in the direction of it? Uh, something I was really struck when we when we read chapter two of the heart is at the very end of that chapter he talks about poetic feelings where there is this kind of longing, uh, and, and it's, it's not really developed there, but he says there, there are these poetic feelings, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that could uh, speak to a, a kind of longing that one might have, or mm-hmm. a, a beloved one hasn't met yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I also think it's, it's much more than theoretical for, for that reason. There is, I think, maybe especially in women, a, a, a excuse me, <laughs> I'm giving my insensitive nature away every time I open my mouth. But um, there is this deep longing to to be married or to to find someone, and um, and so to to appeal to that and say, so when when that moment comes, you want to be ready. You want to be you want to be able to give a beautiful gift. You want also to be uh, to be sort of worthy of the choice. You want to be picked. Mm-hmm. from all other women and so on. So I think uh, it, it is a, uh, I, I tend to agree that it is a, a very powerful, um, persuasive argument mm-hmm. for people that one reason you don't want to sleep around is because you really want to be able to give something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think also historically and, and, and so on, it, it has sort of always been part of the motivation uh, for um, 
you know, saving your virginity if you want. Mm -hmm. So, and I think Vilma would fully agree mm -hmm. with that. He, he mm -hmm. just would say, obviously, it can't be a love for a specific spouse. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's, that's clear. Mm -hmm. that the longing for love has a very strong, I think, psychological power. Let's see. There are two more questions. Um, do, really quickly, do, do you feel, I mean, I don't know if this is going more into the direction of, you know, abstinence and, and, and sort of the talks to abstinence. Do you feel as though we have fully and satisfactorily addressed how we would address our society, but also the, the, the text itself of purity or... I mean, just because we're coming now even just to the close of the morning session <laughs> without having had a second presentation. And so, for the sake... Yes, Kevin, there's a question. Could, oh, could I, could I add something to that conversation? To this before? conversation? Yeah. Okay, are, are there any other... Yeah, that's fine. Let's just try maybe in a few more. We'll wrap it up and we'll, we'll, we'll bring this to a close. I just want to make sure that you're aware of we're reaching the end of our time, so if there are more, more questions about also specifically about the text, and you should certainly feel free to raise them. But um, I, Jesse had his hand up before you, Kevin. Well, so. I mean, you know, well, I was going to say two things. One is uh, she said exactly what I was going to say about predestined okay. sort of beloved. But the second thing, I mean, uh, like I, I remember I read an article in Dr. Crosby's ethics class like seven years ago or something like that, and it was by Elizabeth Anscombe, and it sort of opened my mind to what... Aristotle meant by eudaimonian ethics, like the ethics of happiness, and I think that some of the examples given up there, I've noticed as a student or as a teacher as well that over the years, as my students' behavior has gotten seen <coughs> worse and worse in regard to sexuality, there's just been this explosion of like mental illness. Students mm -hmm. having to say I had to go to the hospital for three days <laughs> and stuff like that. Like, I think that without a doubt, like mm -hmm. we can see objectively speaking that this sort of behavior is destroying us, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, a long time ago I taught high school and, and there was this kind of thing, I, I joke about it probably inappropriately, but like my students would out of nowhere, my high school students would develop ADD out of nowhere and then their parents would like, oh, I don't know, they have this sort of disorder showing up out of nowhere, oh by the way we just got divorced or something like that <laughs> and, and so there is, I think there is mm -hmm. absolutely, we can look at even as she was saying, if they're like scientifically like that this is not something that is good for us. It doesn't. It's not. It doesn't. It's not conducive to our happiness at all. And I think that that can be one of the most powerful arguments: is presenting the view that this is 
scientifically speaking, very destructive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, that, that, yeah, this relation between soul and body, that we become more, some, somehow need to focus on that maybe more. Sister, were you going to respond directly to Jesse? Because that argument you can use, but if you're dealing with students like at college level, they're not going to follow that argument mm -hmm. unless you have all of the proof. And the mm -hmm. problem is that many of those, I mean, because you have to find the studies, you need more studies on that. Um, you know, different scientific evidence has been brought up in different relations this morning to different points. We need more scientific evidence because that's what they're also looking for. And they don't go for it if it's just a Catholic argument, you know, or some Catholic study. Mm -hmm. We know that's true, but we do need more studies to factually found it for people usually to respond to that argument. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kevin, you had had your hand up, yes. Oh, um, so in terms of engaging the culture, I was thinking how, about how von Hildebrand places chastity under uh, the broader virtue of purity. So that maybe one way is to try to, uh, at, a, at a more foundational level, is just to try to awaken people to value around them that there's this tendency in our consumer culture that everything is the same, has the same value. You're going through our economic crisis. Go out and consume something. It doesn't matter what you're consuming. Uh, uh, it could be pornography. It could be a rosary. Just go out and consume. It's all the same. Uh, that just to awaken someone uh, to value at a foundational level could, uh, could be a, a good thing. And he also mentions here the, uh, the possibility of, um, or the possible role that beauty could have in, in awakening people to it. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I appreciate that from the sense of I do think that we can't, as again coming from the philosophical now background. I mean, I have a very deep sense in which, you know, just awakening thought. <laughs> I my greatest success experience as a teacher. I just need to tell you this because it was quite humorous for my first semester teaching. And I was really just encouraging the students, you know, talk to each other, dialogue. And I, and, and I made it a requirement that they couldn't just read alone. They had to read with each other, um, et cetera. And so then I had this hysterical, he was from California. And I mean, he really made my teaching experience. So I'm not trying to belittle at all. And he just came and he said, Professor, dude, I just got to tell you, it was amazing. <laughs> I got myself a case of beer. And I mean, I sat on my bed and I and I thought. <laughs> and I had such a hard time, laughing at that, and and, and, and being encouraging. But but you know, that what really struck me is that, especially also with education, our education is so memory based, or we're so, you know, it's it's we, I, I and I think that. You know, I thought it was very tedious in my youth, of course, when I heard other people. But there is such a joy and a delight in awakening the mind to, you know, the fullness of reality. And I think there's much value in that. And, and again, I think that that personal, that personal contact with a professor or that personal dialogue, I mean, you know, it's been so inspiring to see how people have gotten together. And I think that that, that engagement, you know, so not just that personal witness, but that, that, that engagement of, 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 you know, this is even just a new word, or this is a new concept, you know, let's, 
I, I really, I think that a lot can be done on that level um, and, and would be very enriching. And I think that Hildebrand really, really, really gave us great tools, especially, I think, for our time because they're, they're very important um, things that he talks about and that he makes many distinctions within. So, yes, Chase. Um, I guess I would just suggest like that there are a lot of um, points of what a witness to chastity needs to contain. And I know um, Jason Everett has already brought up, but chastity.com is run by Jason Everett, who's actually a graduate of Francis mm -hmm. University. And it's, a, it's an amazing um, fusion of the scientific evidence, appeal to beauty, um, speaking to people's actual experience, but also giving them intimations of philosophical um, underpinnings. So um, I would just point people there as a, as a resource because it's so systematic and um, there's thorough references to scientific studies that statistically show like, the effects of um, these things um, biologically and also um, you know, case studies of what, what happens to people in these situations. Mm -hmm. Thank you. What's the website again, please? Uh, chastity.com. But that's going to be obsolete here soon. They're going to come out with but it's still it's still up. You can still go to it. <clears throat> All right. Let's see. One more hand. Yes. Um, I was just going to say not to. Well, this is I guess my personal experience um, of talking to people. They they don't want to think anymore. Like I just had a discussion with a couple friends the other day who are practicing Catholics. Who I just my friends. I was shocked that they all had just sort of accepted gay marriage and said, well, you know. And I like talked them through different arguments, and they just. It's almost, it seems like to me that like the instant gratification culture has seeped into thought and even like philosophy and personal life. And that like they don't even think about the long term argument. They don't want to think about long term arguments anymore. And they'll say, like, oh, well, nobody's really shown me an argument that, but they don't even think about the argument. And they just sort of think about what's going to make me feel good right now, which like position, politically or intellectually is going to make me feel good right now, and that's the one I'm going to take. And if I need to change it later, then I'll just change it, and it's fine. And, mm -hmm. and that's maybe why, like the, like, the only thing that seems to be sort of consistent with people anymore is their personal experience and their, their self. Mm -hmm. I think people, you have to maintain like, some sort of consistency with that, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And so then speaking to that, if you can connect with, that's why I think the value of this like, personalist approach, if you can connect something with their personal experience or like desire to be a consistent person, and like, mm -hmm. is it almost seems to be like a consistent application of mm -hmm. thought. Which Google has helped a lot. There was an article on because Google is the instantiation of the instant gratification of thought, right? Of reducing wisdom to knowledge and actually not just knowledge but information, etc. They actually had an article on Google about that. But, um, but, but um, you know, perhaps also just as, as so. Hence, I think, and, and this is why I too love the personalist approach because I do think for that reason, that it is the most powerful approach, I think, nowadays. But perhaps also just very, very quickly to say, maybe, you know, one of the problems that we have is that we try to tackle the difficult, it, that, that very often we try to tackle these negative issues first, it, when, when we're trying to awaken people to thought, you know, that it, if we began, if we, sometimes we're so confined to the areas that, you know, where people have lived this or where it really is a difficult moral issue. But, I mean, if we could somehow begin small and build up, you know, with delightful things like value, you know, or good or, 
you know, starting there and then the natural process to other things will begin. Because I do, I do find that we're sometimes, and, 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 and unfortunately that's just, I think, simply the way it is, that we're, we're confronted with these horrible realities and harsh realities, and then we, ha- we find ourselves having to engage always, only, about them. Yeah, and really that um, if we started on a different level, that would be helpful as well. So, I have two more hands. Oh dear. Okay. And then, but, but really, I, I, we're stopping at 11.30, punctually. Yes, Maria. Yes, patience. Oh, it's very difficult. <laughs> yes. I would, I would say that the, kind of, again, the beauty of the personalist approach, you know, especially in this conversation, can definitely be found, again, in Hildebrand's discussion of the heart. Um, given what you're saying about people not wanting to think, and we kind of live in an emotive culture, and so um, it's not necessarily, you know, delight and beauty for the sake of the example, for the sake of themselves, for the sake of just the experience, but beauty, like appealing to the example of um, the level of beauty that can be achieved in a rightly ordered marital love relationship um, for the sake of awakening thoughts, for the sake of the truth that you can then begin to, you know, pour into them um, once you've kind of hooked their their mind through their through their uh, experience of their heart and making um, bring in that the whole idea of like spiritual affectivity and you know in, intentional um, forget the language the intentional feelings um, could be a, a door into the more philosophical um, rational, but I I mean I I do think that the, the personalist approach has a, a very beautiful and unique opportunity, um, like I said, especially in regard to Hildebrand's discussion of the heart and discussion of delight. Um, affectivity, um, not just being in regard to knowing and doing, but in delighting. Um, and there can be a delight in, in the rational. Um, but that might have to, I mean, it might have to be through the beauty the more intuitive emotive experiences um, that that awakening could happen. I see that tonight's discussion or whenever the discussion on beauty will happen, <laughs> it's resonated deeply with many hearts. So this is wonderful. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for the discussion and for your, this was great to really discuss and delve into the text together. I very much enjoyed that. <laughs>